Uh, if you're newer, if you're visiting here, I want to welcome you um, to Church 21. I guess it's been said a few times we're, we're in this series on him and her, um, asking the question, what does the Bible say about sex and sexuality and gender and marriage and, and so on? Um, and yeah, Dwight mentioned this last week, was him, masculinity, two weeks ago, her, femininity. Three weeks ago, we started it all with me preaching on the Imago Dei, which was this Judeo-Christian doctrine that gives basis by which we can say that all of humanity has um, inherent value and purpose in their lives. And uh, this is, of course, this value and this purpose is, is regardless of any circumstances that you face, or regardless of any even value or meaning that you try and create for yourself, because it's given to you by God, so it's, it's inherent. Um, and so this is what the Imago Dei meant, this doctrine of being created in the image of God. It's, it was the basis by which we can confer identity and meaning and purpose in all peoples of the world. And so this formed a sort of foundation by which we can then build our sermon series. But this week, like was mentioned, I'm taking up the topic of homosexuality. Um, I guess they give the apprentice the easy topics. <laughs> um, but if there's one thing that we can agree on, is that this is a massively sensitive topic. Um, maybe you have friends or family who struggle with Christianity because of this, or maybe it's not friends and family. Maybe this is the very reason with which you struggle with Christianity. I have a, I have a friend, Dan, who speaks on questions about the intersection of Christianity and, and the culture, often on university campuses. And uh, he told me this story. Some of you might have met him when he was here last year. That he lives in Dallas. He got up early one morning to get a flight. And so he called an Uber and they were driving um, him and the Uber driver, you know, going to the airport. And as they do, the Uber driver asks, what do you do? And Dan said, well, I, I speak on the big questions of life. And I said, oh, well, what kind of questions? And so Dan, he starts to sort of throw different topics out there he speaks on, see if anything bites. Like, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? Um, or how do you know morality, right and wrong? Or what about faith and science? Can they coexist? And none of this was really like biting. And so he said, oh, and I also speak on the topic of sexuality. And the driver said, oh, now that's provocative. And I just want you to know that I'm gay. I grew up in the South. And when I came out, my mother, my father, they kicked me out of the house. My pastor kicked me out of the church that I was a part of. And I had to leave everything, my entire life, and rebuild it here in Dallas. And here I am an Uber driver. And he went on to unpack the, the burns and the scars and the wounds that Christianity had inflicted on his life. And Dan listened to this. He said, can I ask you a question? It seems like you've been through a lot. Can I ask you, what do you think of Christianity in general? Like, what do you think of Jesus? And my buddy Dan says he'll never forget his response. They had stopped at a red light, and the driver looked up in the mirror, locked eyes with him, and said, Christianity is the enemy of freedom. And so church, I want to ask you this question. Is that how did we get to that point? If Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, how is it that so many people, millions of people, think that Christianity is the enemy 
of freedom. This is more common than not, right? That the church is seen as this bigoted killjoy. And let's be honest, for some, it has been. And some of you, you're understandably nervous about what I'm going to say because how miserably the church has dealt with this topic in the past. And I get that. I do. These questions, they're deeply personal. And so you can know that it's conviction and compassion that are going to inform my response today. And here's the goal. That maybe there's a way that we can actually talk about this topic that shows the beauty and the goodness and the truth of the Christian message, the gospel. That maybe there's a way that we can communicate the biblical view of sexuality that communicate it in a way that shows that it actually sets people free. Like it says in Galatians. Because the gospel isn't just good news for us here now. The gospel is good news at all times and at all places and for all people regardless of your sexual orientation or how you identify. That the gospel is good news for everyone. Do you believe that? I asked this question a few weeks ago, but I just want to press in a little bit on it. Think for a minute. What is the question about your faith that you would least hope to be asked? I know in university campuses that the question, is God anti-gay, is one of the most pressing questions of our time. And it's become a significant obstacle for many people. And when you get asked this question, or when you ask this question of yourself, do you respond with fear and condemnation? Or even this, do you respond with silence? Because you don't actually believe that Christianity could be good news for that person or yourself. See, if that's you, you need to hear the good news of Jesus afresh. That what's on offer through us, to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus extends to every aspect of our lives, our identity, our intimacy, our fulfillment, things that we so desperately need. After this service, there's going to be a time of Q&A. Outside, uh, there's some benches and some tables. And I, I want to invite you to come and dialogue further. Please don't leave here with your questions unanswered. Um, this is your opportunity for your voice to be heard. Um, because of time, I'll obviously not be able to say everything there is to be said on this topic, but I have to be concise, so I can't be comprehensive, but we'll get into it. I, I've structured it with these three points, creation, fall, redemption, very original. But we're going to start first with uh, creation. This is the question, <clears throat> where do I come from? And I'm, I'm going to also uh, state my assumption up front, and that is that God speaks, that the universe is not a closed system, that rather God has acted in space and in time, and he's revealed himself through his word, the Bible, what Christians call the Bible, and ultimately through the person of his son Jesus, what we call the word made flesh. And as creator, as author of life, his words have authority, that it matters what he says. It matters for our lives. And as creator, God speaks. And this is creation. Theologians refer to creation using these uh, four Fs, that God formed the world, he fit the world, 
And he filled the world for the flourishing of the world. He formed the world, he fit the world, he filled the world for the flourishing of the world. And so in Genesis, you see the creation of distinct yet complementary entities like heaven and earth, land and sea, day and night, male and female. And in all of this, there actually becomes a connection between design, the way that we're formed and we're fit, those first two Fs, and purpose, the way that we fill and we flourish in the earth. I used uh, an example in that sermon on the Imago Dei, and I'll just, I'll just restate it here to remind us this connection between design and purpose. It was this story about uh, what I thought was the cider press that my brother and I, we'd been traveling, we'd found a cider press at a junk shop, quite excitedly, we bought it, we drove it home, and through a harvest party, we threw in our apples and we cranked that thing and it broke almost immediately. We got like an inch of juice. We're like, this thing is truly a piece of junk. So we took it and we parked it in my dad's uh, dining room and it sat there for five years. And then my dad got remarried this past year. My stepmother grew up on a farm. She's walking through our house for the first time and she sees it and she's like, why do you have a, a cheese press in your living room? I'm like, a cheese press? <laughs> I thought it was a cider press. Like, no wonder this thing broke so quickly because I wasn't using it the way it was intended. Right? And so it is with God and us. That if God designed this world, he knows how best it is to be put to use. And so God formed the world and he fit the world to be filled and so it can flourish. And so that means that what the Bible says then is not simply uh, an arbitrary set of rules just for their own sake, but rather the Bible is a story of a God who loves us he creates us and then he actually pursues us with love because he knows what's best uh, for us. And all of this story, it culminates in the person of Jesus. And as Christians, we, we read all of scripture through the lens of Jesus. So I'm actually gonna start with Jesus. And in Matthew 19, uh, there's this group of religious leaders called Pharisees and they actually come up to Jesus and they challenge him with this question. And this is Matthew 19 in the third verse. And they ask this question. <clears throat> Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And this is a, this is a sort of uh, trick question. It's, it's like one of those questions, um, does your mother know you're stupid? Sort of question, right? Because if, if, uh, it doesn't matter how Jesus answers this question, uh, he's gonna get in trouble. Maybe a lot like the sermon. doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to get in trouble. But Jesus answers, verse 4. <laughs> Haven't you read? Um, is that it? Yeah. He answers, Haven't you read? <clears throat> he replied, That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said. Well, who said? Haven't you read? The Creator made them male and female, and said. That, and said here, Jesus is saying that it's actually the Creator speaking. That the words of Genesis are actually also the words of God, the Creator. And then Jesus continues. So the Creator made the male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no man separate. As so you notice here that Jesus goes right back to the beginning, um, which is actually the word for Genesis beginning. And he quotes 
about creation from the first and the second chapters of the Bible. And he says, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. That's from Genesis 1. And then he actually splices it with Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the question is, why is Jesus talking about gender here? Like, why does he go back to Genesis 1 and not just quote that thing from Genesis 2? And I think what Jesus is saying, remember this is a question about divorce, is that you can't understand divorce unless you understand marriage. And you can't understand marriage unless you understand gender. That marriage is premised on the distinction between genders, male and female. And I recognize just by me saying this, this is, this is a controversial statement. And I'm actually going to be looking at this more, gender fluidity, uh, next week. But the reason that Jesus mentions male and female here is to show us that marriage is the joining together of two distinct yet complementary entities. And this is a reflection of God himself, right? Three distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit persons, yet one wholly complementary entity, his essence. And so you say, yeah, there's many different ways that we can express differences between humans and the world. There are, you know, introverts and extroverts and... Uh, people who play forward and people who play defense and uh, well my favorite would be like there's the good cop and there's the bad cop. So there's, there's lo lots of uh, differences in other places and not just gender, right? And yes there are, but what Jesus is saying is that the deepest complementarity is not the joining together of different characteristics and skills or even psychologies. It's the joining together of the whole of the entity, including its psychology and biology. Um, it's a holistic joining together. Um, I think I moved over that too fast. What Jesus is saying is that the deepest complementary is not the joining together of different characteristics and skills, but the joining together of the whole of the entity. It's psychology and it's biology together. It's a holistic joining together. And so you can see in Christianity from this then that, that matter matters, that the body matters, that the biological differences, they too speak of complementarity. And so the union then of man and woman is different than other unions. And God calls this union marriage. And so some of you, you might protest here. You may say, well, Jordan, this is not the way I'm wired. I wasn't born this way. You're projecting heteronormativity onto me. And I get that. But heterosexual marriage is not, listen, the, it's not the ultimate ideal. This marriage is rather, it's a dim reflection of a true marriage, a greater marriage, an ultimate marriage that we can all be called to participate in. And that is the marriage of Christ and the church. And so you see then this, this forming and this fitting and this filling for the flourishing is not ultimately about us. It's about the worship of God and reflecting his goodness into the world because he is the one that's worthy of worship. And so as image bearers, that is, our, that is our task, that is our role, to reflect his goodness into this world, but something in that has gone wrong. Because we so often, we want to make it about ourselves, don't we? And the question of what has gone wrong is my second point. Um, <clears throat> as I was writing this sermon, my uh, baby daughter Hazel, she's, she's three months old, she was propped up in, in front of me in what they call a, it was like plastic chairs, they called a bumbo. 
Um, and she hasn't learned to do much yet, but, but she can smile. And I was practicing through uh, sections of this sermon in front of her. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I noticed that as I practiced, if I, if I looked at her as I spoke, her, her face would light up into this big smile of like joy and be like, ah. It was so cute. But, <laughs> but if I turned away, the moment I turned away, that smile would disappear and instead be replaced by sort of like frustration and groaning. And then if I turned my head back, the smile would return and joy would return. <laughs> and I think this is illustrative of what Genesis is saying has happened between God and humanity. That God designed us for worship of him and that in his presence we would find all delight. And it's not that God has turned his face, but it's rather that we have turned our face away from God, that we have hid ourselves from him, that we have turned from the creator to worship the creation, the things, the peoples, and the ideals that God has given us rather than God himself. And that has cut us off. If God is the creator of life, that has cut us off from the very source of life and joy itself. And it's frustrating us. And so all of humanity was called and meant and intended to reflect the creator, and yet we have tried to replace the creator with ourselves. And this is the heart of sin. And no person or thing is spared from this. We're all sinners. We're all what the Bible calls unrighteous. Or as Sam Albury says it, no one is straight. We're all oriented the wrong way. We're all facing away from God. And our text today was 1 Corinthians 6. Let's go to verse 9. <clears throat> Do you not know, there it is, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so we are all the ones who are unrighteous. None of us deserve his kingdom. God is the only one who is righteous and holy. And we are all out of sync with him in every area of our lives, including our sexuality. Same-sex behavior is just one expression of this. And the text goes on to say, be not deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, inherit the kingdom of God. Do you see the predicament we're in? That this net is cast so wide that there's no place by which I can turn the finger and point at someone else, or you can point at me, which means church, that there is no place for shaming, there is no place for discrimination, there is no place for homophobia in the church. And of course, when I say the word homophobia, I don't mean it like some people say it, like anybody who holds a Christian sexual ethic is homophobia. I mean it in the sense that there is no place that on the basis of somebody's sexual orientation that you can demean them, shame them, treat them poorly. Because this goes against the, the value, the very dignity that God has inherently conferred on that person. That, that would neglect that. And so if you're here, if you're like the opening story that I started with and you face this kind of discrimination, I want you to know that God does not dismiss this. Does God does not dismiss this unjust suffering. In fact, he identifies with unjust suffering so much that he entered into this world and took it on himself. 
And so none of us, church, have a basis by which we can discriminate. Rather, we have all turned, we have all worshipped wrongly the creation. Actually, <clears throat> the reason this topic is so contentious is that the thing many of us have turned to in our worship is sex and romance. We live in a sex-infested culture, a sex-obsessed culture, I should say. And it's been by, embraced by not just non-Christians, it's been embraced by Christians too, that the, the promise of sex and romance has become this sort of be-all, end-all, and it's everywhere you turn. It's in our movies, it's in our books, it's our shows on Netflix, it, it sells our cars. <laughs> our, our young people, they're, they're stressing out about their sex lives before they've even hit puberty. And if you're not into it, then you're trying to get into it. And this has become the addictive narrative of sex and romance. We stake so much on it, right? We, we build our dreams on it. We go to it for meaning, and we go to it for satisfaction, and we go to it, ultimately, to find ourselves. Michel Foucault, he was a pretty famous French postmodern philosopher, and he writes this, this three-volume thing, The History of Sexuality. And at one point in it, he writes this, <clears throat> that we, we demand that sex speak the truth. We demand it tell us our truth, or rather, the deeply buried truth about ourselves we think we possess. And what Foucault is saying is that, that sex isn't just an obsession, but we actually go to sex for truth. We go to it to find ourselves, for it to tell us who we really are. In other words, we have placed our identity in our sexuality. And he doesn't just say that. We haven't just placed our identity in our sexuality. He says, actually, sex is worth dying for. It's more important than our soul. Do, do you think we haven't taken this to heart? On May the 23rd, 2014, a 22-year-old Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara student, shot and killed 14 people before turning the gun on himself. And the day before he did that, he released a sort of YouTube manifesto, which I was an unfortunate enough person to see. And he said this, Tomorrow is the day of retribution, the day in which I will have my revenge against humanity, against all of you. For the last eight years of my life, I've been forced to endure an existence of loneliness, rejection, and unfulfilled desires. Girls gave me their affection. Gave their girls gave their affection and sex and love to other men, but never to me. I'm 22, and I'm still a virgin. It's been tortuous. What's he saying through this? The same thing as Foucault. Sex is worth dying for. The shooter, in his mental instability, had fully bought into that horrific social narrative and taken it right to its extreme. But what is that narrative? What is going on behind this? It's the idea that a life without sex is a life without fulfillment. A life without sex is a life without fulfillment. And, it, and although it might look and sound different, the church is not immune to this at all. We, turn, we too, church, have turned sex and romance into an ultimate ideal. <clears throat> Think about how parents sometimes refer to their children who are married as being settled. You know, I have three children married, three down, one to go. But what does that mean about the son or the daughter who's not like 
married? Are they unsettled? Are they incomplete? I have several friends who are gay and, and celibate Christians. <clears throat> Do you know how difficult for them the overemphasis on marriage can make it for them in choosing celibacy? Like my friend David, he spent years in different gay relationships. And he said to me that, you know, Jordan, both in the gay community and the church, it seems what matters most to people is finding fulfillment in a partner. And so, where did this come from? How did we get here? I think this goes back to the question of our first, from, <laughs> from the first sermon in this series. And that is the question, what does it mean to be human? Because what it means to be human today is almost always directly correlated with your sexuality, but this has not always been the case. There was a time when sex was important, but it was on the margins. That what it meant to be human was to be made in the image of God, each person having an inherent value and purpose. In other words, your worth wasn't dependent on whether or not you fulfilled or unfulfilled your desires. It was given to you by God. But now this idea has been overturned and faced, replaced with a sort of uh, cultural uh, sexual gospel that says you are primarily a sexual being tasked with building an identity on yourself. And so sexuality that was once on the margins has now become right at the center of what it means to be human. And so this is why the Christian sexual ethic has become, it's so contentious because if you're not expressing your sexuality, you must have um, repressed yourself. You're not being true to yourself, right? This is Freud, right? Religion is repressed sexuality. But I kind of want to wrap this section up with this. Maybe, maybe religion isn't repressed sexuality. Maybe it's unhinged sexuality that's actually repressed religion. Maybe religion isn't repressed sexuality. Maybe unhinged sexuality is actually repressed religion. That we're going to sexuality to try and find the things that can only be found in God. And so we're so desperately looking for transcendence and we're looking for it in our worship of erotic love. And yet God says he is love and that transcendence can only be found in him. And so this is what has gone wrong with our worship. Do you see that? Do you see that? It's easy to see that there, out there, but do you see that in yourself? Have you made an ultimate out of sex and romance? I know this to certainly be true in my own life, but one of the questions that was helpful in seeing this was asking yourself this. If you didn't have sex and romance in your life, would you consider your life fulfilled? Thankfully, we, we don't end on the problem today. This is to our third point, redemption. Paul goes on to write this. And such were some of you. See, you and I all caught red-handed in this cycle of wrong worship. <clears throat> but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is our solution. Jesus. Jesus who is fully human and fully God. Jesus who never had sex. Jesus who never had a romantic relationship. And yet his life is the greatest picture of what human flourishing can be. 
Do you see how his life in it relativizes the importance of sex? That sex, yes, it's good because God created it, but it's not ultimate. And so Jesus lives this life of perfect, holy righteousness before God. You could say his face was always turned towards his father. And while the, that was the case, our faces were always turned away and righteous. Because instead of looking at God, we're distracted, right? We're looking to things and to people and to sex and romance to fulfill us. And while these are good things, they cannot bear the weight of replacing God. And so when we make them ultimate things, what happens? We end up become frustrated, enslaved, disappointed. And we cut ourselves off from the true source of life and joy. And it's killing us. But Jesus offers a way out of this. He says, I'll take your false worship. And he takes your false worship and he brings it with him to the cross. And it's on the cross, he says, if you will give it to him, the sin of your false worship, it can die with him. And three days later, by the power of the spirit of God, Jesus rose back into life and he can then extend real hope and real identity to you. And this changes everything. This, friends, this is real love, right? This is costly. This is the transcendent love that we're so desperate for. That love is not a feeling. Love is Jesus Christ giving his life and death for you. And so if you repent and if you receive his spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead can live in you. It can break these broken cycles of false worship. And this frees you. This liberates you. You see, freedom is not the absence of rules and restrictions. Freedom is knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. G.K. Chesterton, I think, said it best. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that, well, it had established a rule and an order. The chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Remember our Uber driver at the beginning? Christianity is the enemy of freedom. I think you can see now how Galatians 5.1 stands, that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. <sighs> Reflecting on this encounter with the taxi driver, my buddy Dan wrote this. He said, I think as human beings, what we really need is to be known and loved by someone whose love is better than romance, whose love gives us an identity that can handle success and failure, a love that frees us to be who we were meant to be, a love that forgives us and cleanses us from our shame, a love that is cosmic, that is sure, a love that gives us order so that we can run to the full and run wild with him. And friends, that's what's on offer to us in Jesus. And I've been going on uh, kind of for a while here, sort of theologizing, it can start to feel kind of heavy, right? Um, but I want to bring this down, and I want to make this more practical, more personal. Um, some of you know a few years ago uh, that I studied in a program in theology in Oxford. And as part of, uh, the, we were about 24 students, and one of the first things we did in that program, we all kind of sat in a circle. You go around, you share your name, and like one thing about yourself, right? I was like, hi, my name is Jordan, uh, and I've worked as an engineer in mines in northern Canada. That's what I said. And then, you know, <coughs> other students share, and there's another one. Hi, my name is David, and I'm gay. I thought, oh, 
well, that's interesting. Like, I thought they had a pretty, like, tight theological statement coming in. Like, I'm really curious. I really want to get to know his story. And so a few days later, I'm like, hey, David, do you mind if you share some of your story with me? He said, sure, come, come on back. So we, we went to his dorm room, and he sat on the bed, and I kind of sat on the ground against the window. And he began to run me through the last three or four years of his life. Um, he grew up in an atheist and an agnostic home. Um, he had uh, aunt and uncles who at some point had become a Christian, and they had said homophobic things to him. Um, someone had used the Bible to condemn him using verses that, and he's just like, I hate Christianity, I hate the Bible. He's, he told me, he's like, I used to see those pathetic uh, Bible study posters on the wall at his university, he'd tear them down and put his rights posters over top. He says, one day I was invited to a birthday party. In the, it was actually in the gay quarter of Sydney, Australia. So he's at this birthday party, and uh, David is a writer for, at the time, his school newspaper. And at that birthday party, he saw a girl he recognized. Didn't know him, but he recognized her because she was an alumni of his school, but she'd also been a finalist in the International Short Film Festival, the Trop Film Festival. Um, and her movie was on uh, showcasing, uh, bringing humanity to people who have Down syndrome, just showing their humanity. And so he's like, I want an interview with this girl from my newspaper. So he goes up to her and he's like, hey, uh, can I ask you, like, what was, you know, they talk, but what was, the, what was the inspiration in you making this film? And she's like, well, do you want to know the real answer or the reporter answer? She's like, well, obviously, this is the real answer. And she's like, it was God. He's like, oh, please, like, don't give me that. Like, Vishnu, Muhammad. She's like, no, it was Jesus. And then she went on to try and, like, unpack how John 3.16 says that, like, for God so loved the world that whoever, and that includes people with Down syndrome, but David wasn't buying that. He's like, like, no, please don't give me that. Uh, I'm gay, so the Christian God isn't an option for me because he creates these desires and then doesn't let me, you know, just to condemn me. Um, and surprisingly, in, instead of retracting with, with fear and condemnation, this girl actually said, David, um, I, I sense the Spirit of God all over me right now. And I, I just want to ask, can I pray for you? Ha have you ever experienced the love of God? And that, that question really took my buddy by surprise. And he's, well, no. Well, can I pray for you? And he's like, well, I guess if I'm agnostic or to it, it, it's not really going to do anything, so sure. And so she, this girl, she laid her, her hand on him, and she started to pray. And David said, immediately, it felt like the whole pub receded. And he, it was just like blackness. And he's like, I could see my own stench, whatever that means. And he's like, I began to feel this oil touching my head and flowing down on me. I'm like, what is that? And I heard this voice, and it said, do you want me? And it said, do you want me? And that was like a, a cry. There's the cry of my heart. And I could hear it from outside myself saying, do you want me? He had been in multiple um, different gay relationships over extended, stable ones over periods of time. And he's hearing this voice, do you want me? He's like, I, I don't know. And then he's like, something in him responded, yes. And he's like, that darkness broke and that pinprick, there was like light that began to shine through. And I heard the voice again. It said, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And he was like, I was... It was so irked by the nature of that language. But he's like, something inside me, he's like, I could sense real love. And I said, yes. And he said, all heaven broke loose on him. <laughs> that the joy and ravishing love of God hit him and he fell to the floor. And he was just such a mess that this girl's like, ah. she's like, went and got like rags from the bartenders, like mopping up his sweat and like helped him get into a taxi and go home. <laughs> 
And David's life from that point was shockingly transformed. He said he couldn't stand the Bible. He's just like, it was so weird to him. And yet the more he read the Bible, the more it began to explain parts of his experience. Things like when you become a believer, the living spirit of God comes down, described sometimes like oil, and begins to transform you from the inside out. And so I want to take a moment here. I'm going to stop and speak. I want to take a moment and speak to anyone in this room who is same-sex attracted or gay. A few words for you. That you need to know that you are, you are wholly loved. You are beloved by God. <laughs> that God pursues you and he longs to lavish his holy love on you. And while your story might not be as dramatic as David's, that God is pursuing you in a unique way and it's no accident that you are here this morning. The second thing you need to know is that your identity is not defined by your desires or your consumption. That if your core identity, if you're a Christian, your core identity is in Jesus Christ. And this informs every other area of your life. That your past doesn't define you, your shame doesn't define you. Nothing can separate you from the love and the grace of God, not even your sexual orientation. And notice the solution I've been calling people today is not heterosexuality. I'm calling people to holiness. Jesus Christ, who is holy love, that's who I'm calling you to. That's the solution, so be defined by him. David would often remind us, he'd say, Jordan, being same-sex attracted is not some horrible curse that God has inflicted on me. This is an invitation to live a radically holy life that I see in so few. That so few aspire to. Third, I want to say this, that Jesus doesn't promise you change of your sexual orientation. He doesn't even promise you change of your attractions, but he doesn't promise to take your temptation away. But he does promise you to give you power over that temptation. You see, Jesus was tempted yet without sin. Yes, this will be hard. Yes, this is an incredibly deep struggle, but know that you do not face this struggle alone. Like all of us, you need the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead to be living in you, working in you, empowering you. We all need that. But you also need Christ's body. We all need that. The church, deep, intimate, spiritual friendships where you can be honest about your struggles. If you struggle about this and you haven't told anyone yet, I want you to know that this is a safe place. And certainly our counseling and our pastoral staff, that is a safe place as well. I don't want you to struggle with this alone. So let's go back to David's story. What happened to David? And so David became a Christian. And he was living in Australia, and he was at once attending a couple different churches, one that was so-called affirming and one that was not, um, wrestling with his same-sex attraction still. Um, and at one point, he moved to France. And while he was away in France, he was, um, there was very little Christian community uh, for him there. And he experienced quite a bit of loneliness. And uh, at one point, he met a nice guy, an actually really cute guy. And they went on several dates together. Um, and this guy invited him back to his house and put on a lovely meal and served some tisane. And I wouldn't share this story with you. Um, it's very personal, but David recently published a book and this story is in his book. So I'll go ahead and say what he said. And that is, um, he, spent some, he was at this guy's place and they were spending time together. Um, and he went to get in bed with this guy. 
And he says, as I went to get in bed, and David's a very uh, experiential person. He says, I sense the spirit of God receding from me. And that verse in Psalm 136 about where can I go from your presence? Even shall I bake my bed in Sheol? And he's like, I can't do it. He turned from the, I can't do it. And he, he had to run out of that apartment. And he was so broken. He's like, God, why would you condemn me to this life of loneliness? And he felt like he heard God say a couple things to him. One is that your sexual orientation is a mountain to you, but it's a sand for me. It's nothing. And the other is that I'm going to send you a present in the mail on your birthday. He's like, well, that's strange. His birthday's coming up. So on the birthday, he waited and nothing came in the mail. And he was mad. He was angry at God. And he went outside to vent at God. And outside, he's standing there. And it was after hours. The postman came back and said, hey, I missed this package in my delivery. I just felt so strongly I still had to give it to you today. And he's like, oh, my goodness. So he opened it up. And it was the book, the story about a Christian who also had same-sex attraction and was a Christian. And as he read, he began to feel the Spirit of God laying deep, heavy conviction on him. That there was something in his life that he had not yet given over to Jesus. Something in his life that was, he described it like Smeagol, like his precious. And that God was calling him to lay down his sexuality. And David's like, I wrestled with that so much. And in brokenness, I hit the ground and said, God, why? And I gave him over my sexuality. He says, in that moment, he's like, all heaven broke loose on me. And I saw a vision of Jesus, and he filled me with such intimacy and joy and satisfaction in him. And I'm listening to this, and I'm like, David, how could you never, you've known those relationships, how could you never go back to them? And he's like, Jordan, he's like, once you've experienced the satisfaction and the intimacy that's offered on you in Jesus, you never, you never want to go back to that. It's so much more compelling. And then he turned the question to me sitting there on the floor. He's like, Jordan, if you're not willing to give up the relationship you have now, if God asked it of you, you're not willing to take up your cross and follow Christ. And that wrecked me. I left his room. I went back to my own. I hit the ground. I was like, God, I didn't know that Christianity was like this. I didn't know that you could ask anything of me. You see, I saw in David this holy dedication that I had seen in so few. See, we so often, we talk about relationship with God. We talk about intimacy with Jesus. But this is a real intimacy. This is so real. It's so powerful. I was like, wow, I want that so more. Jesus, I want you. I desire you so much more. I want your presence. And what I found that in worship, yes, it's ebbed and flowed. But those times of intimacy and presence with Jesus are so much more compelling. There's a sort of expulsion that happens, right? That you can become so saturated in Jesus that it drives out everything that doesn't fit with his purposes so that you can flourish in him. But church, you need to be able, you need to be willing, you're not able, but you need to be willing to follow him anywhere. And so the question I want to ask you today is, what is your precious? Is there anything that has so captured your heart that you are unwilling to give it to Jesus? I'm going to move into a time of response. And I'm also going to do something that's a bit unusual for us today. I want to invite people to come down, okay? See, whatever it is, 
Jesus calls you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Christianity is not meant to be a comfortable, cozy little addition to your life. Christianity can call, Jesus can call anything from you. Whatever you think is sacred in your life, Jesus can ask that thing of you, including your sexuality. And so, what is your precious? What is that thing you are holding back from God? I want to invite those people down who sense that the Spirit of God is speaking to them. Are you like that rich, young ruler, right? He had kept all the commandments, but out of love for his possessions that had blocked his worship of God. Are you like Abraham, whom God had to test, right, with, with his son to see if his inheritance was in the way? Or were you like me? Had you made an ultimate out of sex and romance? And does Jesus have to break that off of you? That actually this is enslaving you and he calls you to repent. What is the Holy Spirit convicting you of right now? Jesus calls you to repent and follow him. I'm gonna invite the band up. To, to repent means to turn around we're all skewed to change our orientation and follow him. None of us are straight. We're all skewed. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, you must deny yourself, repent of your sins, and believe that true love was Jesus laying down his life for you on that cross. And it's only when you repent that Jesus can then pour out his Holy Spirit on you. You see, what the world has to offer you is destruction. What the world has to offer you is fleeting. What the world has to offer you will only frustrate you. But what's on offer to you in Jesus is identity, it is satisfying, and it's purpose-giving. I'll pray. Jesus, thank you that you are here with us right now. I thank you that your presence is real, that you live and you worked in us and you convict us of sin. And so I pray, Jesus, for the people who are feeling convicted. Jesus, I pray that you would make me your disciple. I repent of my sins. I thank you for dying for me. I deny my desires. I deny the things that go up against you. And I lay them at your feet. And I long for your presence more than anything else in your life. Thank you for saving me from sin. Please come into my life and transform me. And I ask this in Jesus' name, the one who brings life.